joined. It's a great joy and a privilege to be here uh, today, this weekend, or this Lord's Day, and over the weekend with you here in, in Calgary to uh, renew fellowship with some of you. Of course, we were here as a presbytery in October, and it was good to meet some of you on that occasion, uh, but wasn't here for the Lord's Day, so it's good to see some new faces uh, today and to meet with the men yesterday also. Uh, to a new fellowship with your, your minister, who I haven't known all that well over the years. So it's been good to spend some time with him and get to know him a little better over the last uh, couple of days also. And as our brother, Mr. Fitton, said this morning, to a new fellowship with our brother Fitton, we spent some time together in the Bible College in Northern Ireland back in, I suppose, 2009, 2010. That was the year, your first year, brother. You were uh, young in the ministry. I was young in the ministry as well, but a little older in age. Uh, we had some good times together. In those, in those days. Certainly we've been praying for you, brother, and great joy in our hearts when you received the call to the Cloverdale congregation. Um, we've been praying for you and your wife going forward uh, as that would come about, trust in the Lord's will, in the next couple of months. And I know you'll pray for them also. Um, we're thankful for a pulpit being filled in our denomination. Keep in mind also the other vacant pulpits that God would raise up men uh, to labor in the Word. And so reading today from 1 Timothy chapter 3, and let's take a time again to read, uh, this time, the entire chapter. And again, of course, our attention will fall particularly on verses 8 and following regarding the diaconate. But let's read the entire portion of the Word of the Lord. And the Word of God tells us here, uh, This is a true saying. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless, and the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given to hospitality, apt to teach, not given to wine, no striker, not greedy, a filthy looker, but patient, not a brawler, not covetous, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. For if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God? And not a novice, lest being lifted up with pride, he fall into the condemnation of the devil." Moreover, he must have a good report of them which are without, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Likewise, must the deacons be grave, not double-tongued, not given to much wine, not greedy a filthy looker, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. And let these also first be proved. Then let them use the office of a deacon being found blameless. Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. For they that have used the office of a deacon well purchase to themselves a good degree and great boldness in the faith which is in Christ Jesus. These things write unto thee, hoping to come unto thee shortly. But if I tarry long... And thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and ground of the truth. And without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh, justified in the spirit, seen of angels, preached unto the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up into glory. Amen. Let's bow together, please, in a word of prayer. We need the Lord's help. As a preacher and as hearers, we need the Lord's help when we come around the Word on this occasion. Let's all seek the face of God. Almighty God and Father, you've brought our attention today already to the preciousness of your Word. And we thank you, Lord, for the work of God in our hearts, that in regeneration you gave us a love for the Word. In the deadness of our nature, we had no time for your Word but now, by the wonderful work of grace, you've given us a longing in our heart to know your word, to hear your word, and to discern what your word would say to your lives. And as that is true for us individually, we pray that will be true for this congregation at this time, that as they make the proper preparation for the election of deacons, we pray that the word of God would prepare their hearts and their minds and govern their decisions and give them help to rightly discern those men who would be called to this office. And we pray, O oh God, you bless us now, therefore. But not only we ask that the Word would again benefit in that particular aspect, but we pray the Word would come with freshness to each and every hearer, and that there be application 
far beyond the diaconate, that we'd understand better the things of Christ, and that He indeed would have the glory in this church today and in the ministry of the Word. Bless our hearts, we ask in Jesus' precious name. Amen and amen. I was thinking this morning that this day six years ago was my first Lord's Day in the Malvern Church. I didn't preach that Lord's Day. I wasn't legally allowed to. I give a few words in the pulpit. I preach the following Lord's Day, but it was my first Lord's Day in the pulpit in, in Malvern. I quickly learned a lesson. And that lesson was that folks from Northern Ireland pronounce vowels differently than folks in the U.S. Vowels is where we trip up. We can do the C's and the K's and the D's, but the E's and the A's and the I's and the O's and all that stuff, that is more difficult. And I said, why am I saying that? Well, because I'm going to tell you about a book I've been reading. And one of the words in the title has vowels in it. It refers to Spurgeon. A very interesting book on Spurgeon and the poor, or the poor, or whatever you say here, those who do not have much in the way of earthly goods. You know the word, yes? You're all with me. Well, the book is Spurgeon and the poor. And there's a fascinating read regarding Spurgeon, of course, the great gospel preacher, but also his burden for benevolence in the London and wider area. A section in that book deals with the subject of the diaconate, and it makes the point that when Spurgeon came to New Park Street Chapel in 1854, the church had a well-established diaconate, but no elders. Now, Spurgeon was very convinced of the importance of biblical eldership, and over time he took the care to lead the church in the installing of elders to serve in the spiritual care of the congregation. However, the book says this, the deacons, however, were in some ways more pivotal to the day-to-day -day operations of the church. Again, it's not a matter of exalting one office over another. It's simply a recognition that in day-to-day -day operations, the deacons were pivotal. Later on, Spurgeon would move to the tabernacle. It says this, the tabernacle deacons were some of Spurgeon's closest friends and most intimate partners in ministry, and he relied heavily on them in the execution of his many plans and initiatives. One man, Lavos, writes this. This is very important. I ask you to listen to this carefully. Spurgeon viewed and treated his deacons as more than good advisors. They were co-workers in the propagation of the gospel. One man in particular comes to the fore in Spurgeon's writings. His name was Thomas Olney. And in the 19, or 19, 1868 issue of The Sword and the Trial, Deacon or Spurgeon gave a glowing tribute to Deacon Olney. He says this, though, in a more broad sense, the church owes an immeasurable debt of gratitude to those thousands of godly men who study her interests day and night, contribute largely their substance, care for her poor, cheer her ministers, and in times of trouble as well as prosperity, remain faithfully at their posts. He says this, deprive the church of her deacons, and she would be bereaved of her most valiant sons. Their loss would be the shaking of the pillars of our spiritual house and would cause desolation on every side. I'm really just trying to remind you of what we looked at on Friday evening of the importance and the purpose of God of having godly deacons serving in this role. A year later, after Olney had died, Spurgeon writes another tribute in 1870 in the Sword of the Trial, and he writes this, of Olney's love and devotion to both the pastor and the church, we all are witnesses. His greatest pride Says Spurgeon, we might also almost use that word, was the work of God at the tabernacle. He gloried and rejoiced in all that concerned the church. Every institution received his cordial cooperation. He loved college, orphanage, and almshouses, and helped them all to the extent of his ability. In our departed father, the poor have lost a friend. The poor, especially the poor of the church, always found in him sincere sympathy and help. Never minister had a better deacon. Never church 
a better servant. Oh, that God would give every church Thomas Olney's to labor with the session in the work of the gospel ministry. You see, you men, some of you, of course, here are eligible to be elected to the diaconate. And in what I've said thus far and what I'll say today, it is a solemn responsibility. It is a genuinely heavy burden. But I don't want that to put you off. One of the things I feared coming here was that all the men would say, not me. The vital task of the deacon is one appointed by God for the benefit of the work of God. And if God has worked in your heart, there should be a long within your soul, Lord, if it be your will, let me serve in this capacity. That when my day comes to an end, a pastor like Spurgeon could reflect upon my life and recognize that in my life I serve Christ and his church. I did it for the glory of God. Not for my glory, not for the glory of the denomination, but for the glory of Christ and his church. You see, on Friday evening, and again, if you haven't taken the time to listen to that message, you certainly can do so. Uh, on that occasion, we sought to try to emphasize that elders and deacons in the Scriptures were to work in harmony for the church to function and serve in Christian love. That's the prototype or the pattern of Acts chapter 6. The beginning of the, if you like, the unveiling of the role was that the apostles may be distracted from laboring in the Word and in prayer, and to help them in that distraction, there was the wisdom to appoint deacons or seven men full of faith and wisdom and the Holy Ghost to serve in that capacity, to serve tables and to minister the needs of the widows. The pattern of course, that was provided in that capacity also led on to the thought of the purpose implied in the role of deacon. Again, I need to make a point here. Brother, our brother Fitton made the issue regarding homiletics and sermon structure. This is not a homiletic sermon, brother, today, because one sermon in three parts. Okay, point one, Friday night, the pattern for the role. Point two, Friday night, the purpose implied for the church out of the role. And today, this morning, just one more point, then two more tonight. Please come back. You see, this is vital. The deacons are to ensure that the Word of God is preached in the church without unnecessary distraction, and that the Lord's people would act in love one for another and for others outside the church. That's what we're about, folks. A place where God is worshipped, where the Word is preached, and Christian love is shown within the church and without the church, all for the glory of Christ. Elders oversee that function, but deacons are absolutely vital to ensure that function happens for the well of the church. And so we've thought of Thomas only and such. Today's question really is, who are the people who perform the role? I'm not please understand here, I am given to alliteration in my points. And I use P's far too often. They're the easy letter to use. But I use the word people very deliberately because the immediate idea is who are the men appointed to perform the role? And I think if you take that view, you will probably fall short of the biblical witness. And so in asking the question, who are the people who perform the role, my answer is very, very simple. They are qualified men who perform the role with the help of others. So I'm not suggesting for a second that people outside men can serve in the office of deacon, but the work of the diaconate is performed by qualified men who will then readily enlist the help of others. And so this morning, the majority of our time is going to be spent in looking at the men who are thus qualified. And we'll finish up a little bit with some comments regarding those who can help. But let's think about these men then, and the men who are indeed qualified. Now, that word qualified is in itself important. It is not simply a matter that men in the church take turns. I've done my three years, your turn now, and next it'll be your turn in three more years, and all the rest. We'll just, we'll just take in turns. No, the church is called by God to examine those men who may be eligible to ensure that they are properly qualified for the work. 
And over in Acts chapter 6, the words that are used are, look ye out. It's old English. But it has the idea of to look at, to visit, or even to inspect. Inspect these men regarding their qualifications for the role among your out of you. In other words, there were those men who belonged to the church body, and they were to be scrutinized diligently regarding their conduct and character to ensure they are properly qualified. This is far removed from the practice of most churches today, who very carelessly treat the role of the deacon and have no understanding of the Word of God's placing of the importance of these particular qualifications. The qualifications in 1 Timothy chapter 3, you've got the Bible there in front of you, I trust. Please do uh, take it out and open it in 1 Timothy chapter 3, and you'll see that these qualifications are given to enable assessment and choice. See, not every man will meet these qualifying marks. These are suitably qualified men. I want to try to summarize here. These qualified men are men, and here I've got three simple headings to keep in mind. They are men of spiritual character with stable families who hold to sound doctrine. I think that's a pretty simple summary, and you can all memorize that, can't you? They are men of spiritual character with stable families who hold to sound doctrine. These three areas are used to really enable the scrutiny of these men so that in the language of verse number 10, they are proven men. Let these also first be proved. The word there has a sense of being tried and tested. They are men who are mature in the faith. One of the questions that may be asked tonight, and have the question answer time after the evening service, maybe, well, how long does it take to prove somebody? I don't think I can give you an answer to that. In our book of church order, deacons cannot be appointed if they've not been in membership for at least one year. So there's some understanding they need to prove these men in church membership, not church attendance, but in faithful church membership for at least one year. And so we're trying to recognize that just within our own, with our own organizational structures, we're trying to recognize that there is the need for some time to prove men regarding these qualifications. So they are proven, qualified men. But let's take each of these three issues one at a time. First of all, they are spiritual character. Now, I'm going to come back over these qualifications tonight, because uh, we're going to look at them as to, well, how do deacons deacon? There's no word called deacon. How did deacons do their function as deacons? Uh, We'll look at some of the qualifications in light of that tonight. So you think, I've left big holes. It's quite deliberate. And we'll come back and fill in the holes tonight, Lord willing. But here you see, in general terms, the emphasis on their character. They are referred to verse number 8. Likewise, must the deacons be grave. That word itself has this idea of of being worthy of respect and honor. These are recognized men in the congregation who hold the esteem of others in the fellowship. They're honorable men, proven men. Verse number 10 says that they are being found blameless. Now here I've got to give an important word of qualification. Blameless here does not mean sinless. If you elect a sinless man as deacon in this church, you're doing something marvelous. It is absolutely impossible. And so in your scrutiny of men regarding their qualifications, I encourage you that at times you must overlook things that they may have done or said to you in the past that you felt, well, that's not very honorable. They're not sinless men. They're not perfect men, but they are men who are worthy of respect and esteem. What you have here, though, in these qualifications are qualifications that really are very ordinary. They're very matter-of-fact in many ways. 
They are, in essence, the expectation for all believers. But what happens in the deacons is that they are proven in their Christian character. They are mature in their Christian character. Their Christian character is very, very plain and very, very obvious. There's no doubt regarding the fact that they are a child of God's because their lives exemplify what it is to live as a child of God. Paul is writing to Timothy here, and Timothy is serving in Ephesus. And some people have made the observation that the qualifications for a deacon will not come as any surprise to the Ephesian believers, because they've heard the very same things in the epistle of that name, Ephesians. They've heard about the importance of the tongue, Ephesians 4, 29. They've heard about alcohol and wine, Ephesians 5, 18. They've heard about greed, Ephesians 4, Ephesians 5. They've heard about the faith, Ephesians 3. They've heard about family and marriage, like Ephesians 5 and Ephesians 6. All of these things have already been taught by Paul, not to men in a room, but to the entire church. Each and every individual believer ought to have these marks in their lives. But the deacons are showing that in mature form. You see, I said on Friday night, we've got to be very careful that we do not select deacons according to their particular skills. I'm talking to some of the folks after the service, and you may see a need in a particular situation. And God sends a man to your church, and you think, well, an accountant has come along. It's very hard for a pastor not to greet an accountant in a particular fashion. Church accountants is not easy. And so you get somebody coming along and they've got gift in accountancy. You say, well, how quickly we can get this man into diaconates? And that's not honorable. At least not without first testing his Christian character. And the same can be true when the, the local carpenter is saved and joins the church. And you think, so at last, the squeaky doors can be fixed. All is well again in the world of this church. You get the point, don't you? We tend to select deacons according to their abilities. But here, deacons are to be qualified according to their character. Character. Spiritual men. If you turn back again to Acts chapter 6, let me just read the words. and It's good to see it in your own, in your own eyes. Because what you see in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is really an expansion of what we're told in Acts chapter 6. And in Acts chapter 6, verse number 3, you'll see the words, Wherefore, brethren, look ye out among you. We've seen those words already. Inspect, scrutinize men who are part of your congregation. And then he says this, Seven men, and here's the term again, of honest report. Whilst blameless does not mean sinless, blameless does mean something. And it has the idea that there is no one going to bring public censure against their character. Sometimes we were having an election of elders in, in Malvern back in 2018, and I kind of jokingly suggested we should put their names into the local papers. So-and-so is going to become a, an elder in this congregation. Please write to if you have any concerns regarding their Christian character. That would be a fascinating thing to do. We have good men. I'm not suggesting anything about the men we have in Malvern. They are good, good men. But that's the point. They're blameless in the sense that they are beyond censure. There's not somebody going to come along to your church door someday, knock the door and say, see that guy in your church is a deacon? He swindled me of 3,000 Canadian dollars. Or see that man in your church is a deacon? He is involved in a relationship with a woman who's not his wife. These are just examples of areas in which they bring public censure upon their own character and upon the church of Christ. These are men who are above reproach. Hence, there is this honest report. They are men who are recognized as having these Christian characters. You see, their, their reputation is not about what they can do, but it is about who they are. But they are who they are by the grace of God. Not perfect men, but and the term we're using, men of spiritual character. Again, Acts 6 says this, 
seven men of honest report, full of the Holy Ghost and wisdom, fullness of the Spirit of God, fullness of the Spirit of God, whereby they have the power to serve in Christ's church. Let's just take some time to think about this matter. We know, Ephesians chapter 5, that we're not to be drunk with wine, we're in his excess, but be filled with the Spirit. In other words, these are men who are led by the Spirit. They're influenced by the Spirit. Their every action is a spiritual action in the help of God. You see, please turn to Romans chapter 8. Because spiritual men have certain characteristics. Again, there's so much confusion in the world today regarding what it is to be filled with the Spirit. Does it mean you speak in tongues? I'm just again, by the way, our Book of Church Order makes it clear that if you speak in tongues or so-called, you may not be a deacon. You're not allowed to embrace the charismatic confusion and still be a deacon in our denomination. So fullness of spirit here is not referring to these spiritual giftedness. It is simply the fact that they are men who walk in the Spirit. Romans chapter 8, of course, tells us that there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Now here, allow me, please, if you're not a man here today, or you're not a church member, so one, you can't be a deacon, and two, you can't vote, that does not give the excuse to switch off now and think about whatever's happening in your life. Because here, when you come to Romans chapter 8, you see some very, very important teaching regarding the basic essence of Christian life. You see, you'll know Romans. Romans is a very important book, of course. And in the early chapters, it deals with the fact, how can a man be right with God? And it's clear, you can't be right with God by your own performance of the law. The only way you can be right with God is by Christ's righteousness on your behalf. He performed the law for you. He died on the cross that your sin can be canceled. Therefore, you are justified and accepted before God. But the concern in Romans was that those who were thus justified would use that as an excuse to live as they pleased. Shall we sin that grace may abound? And so Paul in Romans 6, 7, and 8 explains what happens when the justified man is radically changed by the Spirit of God. That they die to self. And Romans 6, they rise to newness of life and they are indwelt by the Spirit of God. They're not perfect, Romans 7, but they are spiritually led men and women. You see, Romans chapter 8, verse number 8 says this, They that are in the flesh cannot please God, but ye are not in the flesh, but in the spirits. If so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. We, we say no to any idea of spiritual gifts as evidence of the Spirit of God. Or we say no to any idea of a future spiritual second blessing required to receive the Spirit. Each and every justified man is a Spirit-filled man. They're indwelt by the Spirit of God. But when Paul will speak to the Ephesians, don't be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, he's saying you must ensure that the indwelling Spirit takes control of your life, and that's then expressed in various ways in the home and in society and in the workplace. What you're seeing here in Romans chapter 8 is that there is therefore now no condemnation. To put that positively, there is justification, for justification is opposite to condemnation. There is justification to them which are in Christ, and those that are in Christ, they walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. They are spiritual. And so it says in verse number 4 that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled on us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So how do you know a Spirit-filled man? Because they put off sin, and they put on Christ. They are Christian law keepers. Not to earn their justification, but in light of God's power in their life and regeneration, they are those who, as our brothers said this morning, they say in their heart, Oh, how love I thy law! 
The law is my delight, enamored man, Romans chapter 7. And I'm glad to do the will of God in my life. And so in chapter 8, verse 13 here, there are those who put to death the deeds of the body. The deacon will be willing to come and say, oh yes, I had these spiritual fights and struggles, but by God's grace and by His Spirit, I am putting to death the deeds of the flesh. I'm putting off sin, and I'm putting on Christ, because the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, and all those things mentioned in Galatians chapter 5. How do you know a spiritual man? Because of their life of holiness. And also because of their life of prayerfulness. You see, you have here in chapter 8, verse number 6, for to be carnally minded is death, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace. Spiritually minded. And that shows itself in terms of their prayerfulness. Verse number 15, for ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. See, these men who you're scrutinizing for the diaconate must be stand-out spiritual men. Life of holiness and a life of devotion and prayerfulness who by the Spirit of God know God as their Abba Father in close communion. They have assurance of their salvation and they have confidence in prayer. Again, I understand that in our culture here in North America, it is not possible for every man to make every single midweek prayer meeting. There are challenges with distance and work. One of our own elders works a shift pattern that finds it very difficult to get to our midweek prayer meeting. But he ensures that when he's there on the Lord's Day, he's a spiritual leader in our church. And when we have seasons of prayer on the Lord's Day, he leads in those seasons of prayer. You do not want to elect men for the diaconate who will not lead your congregation in spirituality. They are not elders but they are men filled with the Spirit of God, and you will, give, you will see evidence of that spirituality in how they lead the congregation. They will lead them in communion with God. They are so filled with the love of God that they know God as their Father that they will lead and encourage others in that similar fashion. That they are not prone to carnality, but they are burdened with spirituality. And they are those who will say, oh, we love the law of God. We love the word of God. We love the house of God. We love the worship of God. We are those who know God as our Abba Father. And they lead the church in that spirituality. Is this just true for deacons and elders? No, of course it's not. It's true for every single child of God. But you and I both know, and we know very, very well, that those who profess with children of God do not always manifest these things, and there are different levels of spiritual maturity. So we're seeking to scrutinize men who show this level of spiritual maturity and the fact that they are men who are spiritual in character. And in so, again, back in Acts chapter 6, don't turn there now, but again, back in Acts chapter 6, not only are they filled with the Spirit, but they are also therefore full of wisdom. See, where does wisdom come from? If any man lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, James chapter 1. So we know that wisdom comes by the Lord, and it comes by the Lord as the Spirit of God ministers in our lives. So wisdom is the ability to properly apply the Word. You know, there are people in secular universities who are experts in Hebrew and understand the form and the syntax of the Hebrew Scriptures. But they lack wisdom. They know Bible stuff, but they don't know how to properly apply the Bible. Paul would pray for the Colossian believers that they'd be filled with the knowledge of God's will in all wisdom. Not only knowing the Bible, but knowing the Bible and how to apply the Bible. You see, it's vitally important that those who serve as deacons are able to assess a life circumstance and know how does the Bible impact that life circumstance? In what sense does the Bible apply to this single mother who comes to our church and, and is not able to work? How do we bring the Bible to bear upon her circumstance? 
How do we see our neighborhood? And how does the Bible deal with a particular drug problem in our neighborhood, say? These are men who want to lead the church in the function of Christian love, and therefore they are men who possess wisdom. That wisdom is seen, yes, not only in the application of the Bible, but also in their general conduct. Please turn to James chapter 3. Remember where we're doing here, Acts 6? Here are the men you're pointing, here are the men you're looking out for, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. So what does wisdom look like? Well, we're told directly in the Word of God what wisdom looks like. James chapter 3, verse number 13. Who is a wise man and endued with knowledge among you, let him show out of a good conversation his works with meekness of wisdom. The word conversation, I know you'll know, is not referring to our speech, it's referring to our life and our conduct. And so the man with wisdom will show in his life the works that are marked by the meekness of wisdom. Can't expand upon that, but spiritually filled men who are marked by divine wisdom are men of meekness, gentleness, and compassion. Verse 14 says, But if you have bitter envy and strife in your heart's glory not, and lie not against this truth, this wisdom descendeth not from above, but is earthly, sensual, devilish. For where envy and strife is, there is confusion in every evil work. But the wisdom that is from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, easy to be entreated, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality and without hypocrisy. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace of them that make peace. I love how the Bible all fits together like this. I used to do jigsaws. It frustrated me so much, but I had to stop doing them. The Bible is a wonderful tapestry of divine revelation. You see, what you see, Acts chapter 6, get you out men who are full of wisdom. Why? Because there's division in the congregation. The Greek and the Hebrew widows, they are, they are feeling aggrieved one among the other, potential for a massive division in the church of God. So you must have men who are full of wisdom. Why? Because they're the ones who come in purity and in peaceableness and in gentleness. They're easy to be entreated. They're not slow to hear the needs of others. They're open-hearted, open ears, and they're willing to bring people together for the glory of Christ and the church. They're not those who sow division. They are those who heal division. They're not guilty of partiality and hypocrisy. They're those who are genuine spiritual men in the house of God, and they bring the work of God together to love in Christian fellowship. Acts 6 and James 3, they come together and there is a resounding amen between those two portions of Scripture. The Bible fits together so beautifully. These are spiritual men. May God, as I said before, give us more Thomas Olneys in our churches. Well, that's the first one, spiritual character. Remember the next one? What was the next one? stable family, more briefly and more quickly. They are marked by a stability in their family. Again, turn back to 1 Timothy chapter 3. A mention is made here, verse number 12, let the deacons be the husbands of one wife, ruling their children and their own houses well. Stable family. This is one of those verses that will almost always cause some degree of consternation and controversy in a church. What does it mean? Well, again, just to put this on the table, we as a denomination have agreed a policy that divorced men cannot serve as deacons, nor can those who are married to divorced wives. That's our policy. It's in our BCO, and we've all agreed upon that. I say that but I don't believe that's what this verse actually means. There's wisdom and prudence in that particular policy, but I don't think that's what verse number 12 means. And I wouldn't want you to think that is the application of this particular text. Does it mean that you can't have singles 
serving as deacons? Is it a precept that is requiring that those men who are deacons must be married? Well, when you go back to the qualifications of the elder, you'll see again the elder also, verse number 2 of chapter 3, must be the husband of one wife. Husband of one wife. And yet we find that the apostle Paul was a single man. 1 Corinthians 7. So is it the case that elders have a higher qualification than the apostle? I think it's unlikely. I also think it's very unlikely that a man who was married becomes a widower and therefore must set down the office. I don't see any wisdom in that, Paul said, either. So then people say, well, if it doesn't mean that, then does it mean that Paul is condemning polygamy? And some suggest, well, you're in Gentile areas, that there are those who are married to more than one wife, and therefore the desire is, well, in the church, those who lead, they must be monogamous. They must not be polygamists, more than one wife. But that itself doesn't sit well either. Over in chapter 5, verse number 9, we are told regarding the widows in need that those who receive help from the church are those who in their qualifications were the wife of one man, verse number 9. The very same structure and form. And it is recognized that it was not the case that women had multiple husbands. That's never been the case, generally in most cultures. Whilst there are times, of course, when men have taken more than one wife, foolishly, unbiblically. Yet, of course, also the case is that there were not those who were wives and multiple husbands. So what's this all about then? Well, I think it is, we might term an idiomatic phrase, basically saying that those who are married in their scrutiny are, if you like put it this way, a one-woman man. And no one doubts that. No one's questioning that that man loves his wife. No one's doubting for a second that that man has any consideration to go some other place. He's absolutely devoted and loyal and faithful to the woman who he who is his wife. And that's why he's the term stable family. In this sense that as the congregation would scrutinize these men and they would see them interact in the church, they again are convinced, here's a man who really loves his wife. That's so important. Now, in some cultures, the expression of love between a man and his wife is less free than in other cultures. Again, our brother Fittenden and brother Blackhurst back in Ulster, men tend to be very slow to show any signs of public affection or public praise for their wives. And the term is, as I used before, sir, you, you know I love you, dear. But there are, whatever the culture, there are very, very clear evidences how a man cares for his wife, how he talks about his wife, how in private conversation he refers to her with dignity and honor. He's a one-woman man who also exercises spiritual leadership in the home. Again, verse number 12, ruling their children and their own house as well. The household becomes the and I can use this term, the petri dish, to investigate and to assess the qualifications of a man. In their family life, do they exercise diligence in their leadership responsibilities? Because remember, deacons will lead just as elders will lead. They'll lead in different areas, but they will both lead. And so they rule their children and their own house as well. That text is not an excuse for men to be dictatorial and domineering in their leadership. We get details regarding the rulership involved in the, in the eldership qualifications. Verse number 4, one that ruleth well his own house, having his children in subjection with all gravity. But note verse 5, for if a man know not how to rule his own house, how shall he take care of the church of God's? So when you're scrutinizing a man regarding his family life and regarding the ruling of his family life, what you're really assessing is how does he care for his family? Rule and care here are used interchangeably. 
To care is to rule, to rule is to care. They're used together. And the word care there is actually used of the Good Samaritan who doesn't beat the injured man with a stick but nurses and cares for his wounds. Again, I come back to the same point. These who are filled with the Spirit of God are those who are marked by peaceableness and gentleness. Well, we've got to keep going, haven't we? This man is marked by spiritual character with a stable family who is also of sound doctrine. 1 Timothy chapter 3 again, verse number 9, holding the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. Are you folks okay for about another 15 minutes? 10, 15 minutes, is that okay? I promise you we'll be done before 12.25. But this text has got a lot in it. What is the mystery of the faith? Well, what is that all about? Is it something you can't discover and something unknown? Well, very quickly, turn to Colossians chapter 1. There are two portions of Scripture that are very helpful when it comes to understanding what this term is that Paul uses. He's the one who used this term, the mystery of the faith. We think of mystery, we think of some novel uh, that you're, you're waiting to the last chapter to see what happens. And even then, you're sometimes even more confused. Well, here we're seeing mystery in the Pauline, in the sense of the Apostle Paul. Colossians chapter 1, verse number 26. Right, let's go verse 25. Whereof I am made a minister... In the church, according to the dispensation of the stewardship of God, which is given to me for you to fulfill the word of God. Even the mystery, which hath been hid from ages and from generations, but now is made manifest to his saints, to whom God will make known what is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." And so the mystery, as Paul used it, is a term to describe the gospel of Christ, which in the Old Testament was revealed to the Jews in types and in shadows, but now in the New Testament is revealed by the apostles in the brilliance of the glory of Christ Jesus. And that mystery has been gloriously revealed. So over in chapter 4 of Colossians, verse number 3, he says this, with all praying also for us, that God would open unto us a door of utterance to speak the mystery of Christ for which I am also in bonds. The mystery of Christ. Again, we really don't have time for this, but you could also turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You can make a note on that. And you can look at 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and it describes how that we do not see the hidden things of God unless the Spirit of God reveals them to us. The mystery is the truth of the gospel revealed to us by the Spirit of God. So back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, we have these men who, again, they hold the mystery of the faith in a pure conscience. They are saved men. They personally hold the mystery of the faith. Just because somebody comes to visit the church and they're an able accountant or carpenter, if they are not converted, do not use them as deacons in the church. That's obvious. Well, sometimes you've got to say the obvious. These are men who know the Lord. They believe the gospel. And they can stand in front of the church and say, here's my testimony. I was blind, but now I see. I had no heart for Christ, but now I love Christ. And they will gladly tell you what God has done in their lives. They're saved men. Here are also sanctifying men. I'm actually not opposed to the idea of being sanctified. That's used of the saints. They are set apart for God. But they're also progressing in that. And they have a pure conscience, verse number 9. They are those who keep short accounts with sin and are not living a life of duplicity where they make a profession of faith, but there is this underlying defilement in their conscience. They're harboring some particular sin that is not yet made, in, has not yet been made into the light. And you see this, they have a pure conscience. Save men. Sanctifying men. Here are also men who are sound in the faith. This idea of holding the mystery of the faith indicates that these men have not succumbed to doctrinal error or falsehood. But wait a minute, Pastor. Is, is this, 
Are we not talking about the service role here, the deacon? They don't have spiritual oversight of the church. Perhaps. But they have great influence. They have profound influence in the church. See, the deacon functioning properly will be in constant communication with those in the congregation. Interacting at all times. Conversations. Communication. And as involve the people who are often vulnerable, they must not be those who are sowing errors and heresies among the people of God in the church. They must be sound in faith. And it is the duty of the elders to assess these men regarding their soundness in the faith. That they are those who know the gospel and can defend the gospel and have not come to believe the lies of the devil regarding the gospel. It's important, isn't it? You see, all of these three matters, their spiritual character, their family life, and their soundness in the faith, all of these things are all predicated upon the fact that these men do carry influence. And therefore, you want men who will serve as examples in family and in personally, and they will serve as leaders in the church. If you get not much else out of this weekend... I hope you get a lot more than this, but if you don't get much else, at least please leave these meetings today with the determination to take this matter very, very seriously. And don't come to a voting meeting for the deacons and think, well, I like so-and-so, and I like so-and-so. Should they all do a decent enough job? But come with the sense of voting before God. For men that you've thought of very carefully and sought to see, do these men meet the qualifications of the Word of God? Not according to your mindset, but according to the mindset of the Scriptures. This is a serious matter. Well, point one for today was that these are the men who perform this task. And I said, what the case would be, they are qualified men who receive help from others. Well, who are the others? Well, look at verse number 11, please, of chapter 3. What it says here, Even so must their wives be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. Now, what I said regarding the potential for single men to serve, I don't exclude. But I do also understand that ordinarily and normally, those who serve as deacons will be those who have family life and thus they have wives. Now, the debate here in verse number 11 is that the word for wives used here is a word that can also be used simply for women. And so some have claimed verse 11 as a proof text for the deaconess. And they would put it this way, even so must the woman, i.e. the female deacons, be grave, not slanderers, sober, faithful in all things. I don't think that's what it means. The word that's used here in verse number 11 is translated with the word wife in verse number 2 and in verse number 12, where very obviously it is not just any woman in view, it is a wife in view. And so you see in verse number 11 is the qualifications for those women, the wives of men, who are called to be deacons. Now, I would hold this to a, perhaps a lesser degree of dogmatism than some other things. But that is my persuasion. You see, the question that must be asked is, why is there no direct information regarding the wives of the elder? It's not there. The wives of deacons are looked at, but not the wives of elders. I would say this, please understand this. There's again no suggestion that the wives of elders can be lesser qualified than the wives of deacons. That's not the point. And thus, I think the point is a recognition that in the diaconate, the wives of deacons will serve alongside their husbands. The wives of elders, and I put this very strongly, the wives of elders must not share in the particular role of the elder. They must not be proxy elders in the church. One of the things my wife was concerned of when I, I was felt called to the ministry is, well, how can I be a pastor's wife? 
There's no such office in the church. I said, be my wife. Do a good job there and all will be well. You see, there's this idea oftentimes that in the church, the pastor's wife takes on some particular function and role. Now, yes, a pastor's wife we trust will be spiritually minded and gifted and able and will certainly serve the church wholeheartedly. But they shouldn't get their own office. And they should not be privy to the delicate matters of church business. Again, it's not right for me to use my wife in that regard. The matters of eldership and session business should be kept among the elders in the session because there are matters of confidentiality. And one of the things that delights my heart so much is when somebody will come to my wife and say, did you hear about? And she can say with all conscience, I haven't heard anything about that. But the deacons are different. I think they can and will naturally share their duties alongside their wives. And surely if a deacon has tasks that involve the help of a woman, it is so much wiser that the woman who helps him is his wife and not some other woman. Hence, there's a need because the women in the diaconate are going to be privy to information, perhaps financial information. And they therefore must be grave, not slanderers. They must be sober. They must be reliable and faithful. And so those men you're scrutinizing, you must also scrutinize their wives. I think this is in respect to Phoebe. The deacon mentioned in Romans chapter 16, the servant I think likely she fulfills diaconal tasks without holding the office. And thus, ladies should be very much involved in the practical, temporal, and physical tasks of serving the church. One of the roles of deacons may well be to organize fellowship lunches. Well, only deacons can organize that. Only deacons can make the sandwiches and pour the tea. You know that's not the point. But the deacons are those who will initiate those things. And they will say, it's about time we had a meal train for this family in need. And the deacons are the ones who see those needs. And they see a young family suffering and struggling, perhaps a newborn, some babies coming in this congregation, and there's a need. And they're the ones who will drive that. But they will then gladly say to women in the church, I have no idea how to start. Can you please help me? You see, the service of the diaconate is, in God's word, to be organized and led by suitably qualified men, but men who will very, very gladly bring in the help of others to serve in the Lord's work. Spurgeon says of Spurgeon's benevolent ministries, in fact, on one occasion, there was a list read of Spurgeon's benevolent ministries, 66 different benevolent ministries he organized. And regarding those ministries, it says this, back to the book about the poor. By this, I mean that many of the tabernacle ministries did not originate with Spurgeon at all. Rather, he sought to be responsive to the burdens of his people and, incur and, and endeavored to resource and encourage them as they brought ideas to the table. Dear people, don't leave the work of the diaconate to some deacons. Spurgeon, through many of the tabernacle ministries, though they did originate with Spurgeon, the benevolent program of the church was not strictly top-down. Again, the book says this, Spurgeon was keen to collaborate, and he welcomed the ideas and contributions of the members. He was always eager to get behind the zeal of his own members in their efforts to do good. One minute left. Deacons lead in service. And when you have men like Thomas Olney in your congregation leading in service, they will inevitably provoke others to ask the question, what can I do? And so elder and deacon function together in harmony so that the church prioritizes preaching but does not neglect the need for the people to love one another and to love others for the glory of Christ in his church. Amen. Brother.
Let us briefly pray, please. Our Lord and our God, we give thee thanks for thy word. We thank thee for thy servant, diligently examined and studied and has brought forth these truths. And we hear these qualifications and we must all say with the Apostle Paul as he spoke of the gospel ministry who is sufficient for these things. No oh God, if we think that we can find it within ourselves and we can pat ourselves upon the back, then that's evident that we are not sufficient for these things. But our sufficiency is of God. And so we come before Thee with our great frailty and weakness and pray for grace, O Lord, for those whom Thou will be pleased to call into this important office. Lord, that Thy Word will land and where we see our lack, that we would go to the Lord for that help and that strength and where we don't see our lack, that, Lord, Thou would humble us, that we would see our great need of Thy strength and Thy grace. And so, Lord, it may it please Thee to bring us all in this evening, and that we would hear this concluding uh, teaching to understand the mind of Christ in, the, uh, in this particular work in His church, that we would understand that He rules, that He rules His church and He determines how his church is run. And it is not for a man's opinion, but it is according to the revealed word of God. And so help us, we pray. Bless thy word. Change us, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Please take up your hymn books uh, to hymn 560. Hymn 560, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Take my moments and my days let them flow in ceaseless praise. Let them flow in ceaseless praise. We'll stand to
grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all. Amen. Amen.